Hi, folks. Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Before we begin our lesson today, we have a quick announcement to make. We've made a formal change to our weekly Bible study, and it's going to be moving to Tuesday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. West Coast Time. And with this change, what we want to do is also open up the study to those who would like to join live rather than watching the recording of the class on YouTube. Now, there's going to be a limited number of seats available of people who will be able to join the current class as it stands. So this Bible study will begin Tuesday, September 21st, and it's going to be a 10-week long study through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we're currently working out the details for registration, and that will be through our website, figtreeteaching.com. But in the meantime, if you're interested in joining live, what you can do is you can sign up for our mailing list, the Fig Tree mailing list, and more information will be coming out as we get that formalized registration process completed. So we'll keep everybody informed through our mailing list. So once again, this is going to be an opportunity to join the Bible study live through the wonders of Zoom, of course, so you can save the date. It is Tuesday, September 21st. It'll be 8 p.m. East Coast time, 7 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. West Coast. And this is going to be a 10-week long study through the Gospel of Matthew. And so as of right now, you can go to figtreeteaching.com, get our email communications, and then when we get the registration process formalized, we'll get that information out to you so you can sign up for the class. Until then, enjoy today's lesson. So we are on the second half of the story of Jesus walking on water. And I see, I've already noticed that I have walking on water and it's really walking on the sea. And we'll see that tonight when we look at Matthew. He uses the word sea specifically for Jesus. And then when he gets to Peter, he switches the word. So really this title should be walking on the sea, but we all know it. In our modern expression is Jesus walking on water, so that's how we'll title it there. Okay, so this is actually the 19th uh, in our series on the Sea of Galilee, so we're moving along through that nicely. And, of course, this is the Sea of Galilee uh, right at sundown, so I guess what you call that a sunset cruise on the... Sea of Galilee and one of the Jesus boats that they have for tourists. That'll be our background picture as the disciples are out on a ship or on a, on a ship. They're out in a boat as Jesus comes walking out to them on, on the sea. Now, what I'd like to do is start tonight. If you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 69. So we're going to start in Psalm 69. Just read a few verses, because the, all of the imagery that we looked at last week in part one is going to show up as David is talking about something that's the chaos that's erupting around him. So Psalm 69.1, you can find a lot of this imagery in the Psalms and, of course, the prophets and in the book of Job, but this is just one example. And I think you can even link something later in Psalm 69 to the story 
uh, of Peter, and we'll do that later. But just look at the first few verses here. I'm just going to look at verse 1 through 4. So something is happening to David. So things for David are falling into disarray. They're destabilizing his life. So we know that chaotic events are inherently destabilizing. The structure, our inner structure, our soul, or to use the Greek word, psyche, it's like a structure, and when chaos comes around us, it destabilizes us. So chaotic events destabilize us, right? Biblical metaphor, as we've been looking at the past two weeks, or the last week and tonight, is water or a flood. So if we look at verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Now, is David literally being swallowed by the waters? No, this is all metaphor. So he's working in the metaphor of the waters coming up to his neck. Verse 2, I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. So what's he looking for? He's looking for something solid to stand on. He needs a foothold. The things in his life are changing rapidly around him. They feel unstable, and he's looking for something solid to put his foot on. I have come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. So you can see David is, he's in chaos. He's, uh, things around him have completely destabilized, and you can see how, to a human being, the metaphor of water, a flood, the depths, really powerful, because you can feel that in your own lives, when things become destabilized and you don't feel like you're walking on solid footing. Um, if we look at verse 3, verse 3 and 4, I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Have you ever been there in that situation where things seem so uncertain, so uh, chaotic, that you feel like, where is God in that moment? I keep looking for my God and he's not there. And then here's the, this is the part that I, that kind of blew my mind because we just covered this a couple weeks ago. Look at verse four. Those who hate me without reason. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the zealots and there's an interpretation of the rabbis that say in 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the reason God let the temple be destroyed was baseless hatred. They hated each other for no reason. And here in Psalm 69, David is surrounded by people who hate him for no reason. They outnumber the hairs of my, of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Can you imagine being in a country where people hate each other and no one's done anything to each other, but hatred abounds? And that's exactly what David is in... in uh, he's dealing with, and of course, that's what Jesus deals with too. So it goes on, I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. The point I want to make here, though, is the imagery of water and the flood and the deep, and that God, of course, we use the metaphor that God is a rock, because what's David looking for on his foothold? He's looking to try to put his foot down on something stable, a rock, Rock is eternal. It's been there, you know, for as long as human beings have been here. So rocks seem to be eternal. 
they're stable, they provide something stable. So God is a rock. So it's a great opening to a psalm. Later, they come back to this, and we'll come back to it later, because I think it even applies with Peter. But I just wanted to show you that to give you an example of how the biblical imagery uses the idea of the flood, the waters. Now, the sea, of course, takes on more. That's the enemy of God. But it's just a great example of, of that biblical imagery and how David is feeling so destabilized by what's happening around him. Okay, so that's just a little introduction. So, by way of review, very quickly, last week, we talked about this idea that comes out of the biblical text. You also find it all around the ancient Near East, and I would argue it's still happening today. It's this cosmic battle. It's the cosmic battle of order versus chaos. It's uh, not tyrannical order. It's God's order that allows human beings to blossom as, they're, as God intended them. So it's a cosmic battle. There's order versus chaos. And the enemy of God is depicted very often in the Bible as the sea or a sea monster. And it's the thing that disrupts God's order. And of course, the ancient people like to look around their world and whatever phenomenon they feel, they want to find something concrete. So when you see a storm, that's the this disruption of God's order. So if we think about the sea as the enemy of God, you might get think of a picture like this that is obviously chaotic. You don't want to be out in that, but it's that picture of the, the storm that's continually slams up against God's created order and tries to disrupt it. To the ancient mind, and I suppose even our minds today, we often come up with a picture like this. It's the Leviathan. It's the monster under the waters that creates the chaos. And we anthropomorphize it, and we create something bigger out of it, because we want to deal with the chaos, but we don't know how to. So you create something like, you know, something more concrete than just a chaotic event. So that would be the sea, the enemy of God. So if we go back to our list, we noted last week that God has authority over the sea. And from Genesis chapter 1 all the way on, God has authority over sea. Now, not just the water, the literal part, but the anything that is a chaotic event. And then the cool part is that in the New Testament, the authority of, that, of the Father, so God's authority over the chaos, the sea, is passed down to the Son. That's how we know when Jesus gets into the boat and the disciples say, surely this is God's Son, it's because the authority of the Father is passed down to the Son, and when Jesus walks on water, now you know he's truly the Son of God. So it's a, it's a picture of that authority, and that happens throughout our uh, gospel writers, are always telling us stories about Jesus's authority that's just like his father. Okay, so that was all last week. A couple more things, because we, we ended uh, on a, something from the Old Testament. So, or I'm sorry, let me back up a minute. One of the hardest parts, one of the hardest parts about us studying this text 
is that we're Westerners. And we talked about this last week. The idea that the moment you look at Jesus walking on water, you try to make it into some kind of physics equation. How is that working? And this is what everybody struggles with, at least in the Western mindset, because we're trying to solve the problem. And if I can't solve the problem of how he walked on water, then I throw the whole book away, is how many people feel about it. This is our Western mindset, makes it very difficult to read the story. And we don't study, we don't study it from the Eastern mindset, which is all symbolisms. Everything in their storytelling, everything in the pictures that they they make is layered meaning. All the symbols carry multiple meanings. They interact with each other and they tell a story in a way that's deeper than if you just do it on the surface. So, for instance, we live in a very low context environment. The United States, by the way, the lowest context commu- of with when it comes to communication, the United States is the lowest context communicating nation in the world because we're a melting pot. We don't share common expressions with all of the people around uh, the world, so everybody has to speak and communicate on the surface level. Particularly when you go to the east, when you go to the east, it's high context. All of the meaning is layered into what's being, how the communication is going. There's a lot of symbolic meaning. It's layered underneath, and it's intentionally done that. The speaker knows he's doing it. The audience expects that type of communication. And so what happens when you get an Eastern document, you have to go underneath and look, because that's where the communication lies. And often what you're dealing with is this big metaphor, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to ask you to, as much as possible, and I know it's harder for some than others, to check our Western mindset at the door, or at, yeah, check that at the door, and as much as possible, let's allow the symbols to speak, allow the metaphor itself to emerge in a way that is very powerful when it does emerge, when we begin to see it. It's like our eyes open up and we can see something that we didn't see before. Biblical metaphors are created for human beings. That's how God communicates to us. When we see them, they speak volumes. And uh, they're often just more impactful. And I think many people who've gone back and began to study the text, looking at the symbolic nature, the metaphors, they will recognize that immediately. So that's what we're going to do today. All right, so now, last week, this is what I was going to do earlier. We mentioned last week this question, who walks on the sea? And this time I did change my my, uh, slide here. Who walks on the sea in the Old Testament? Well, it's God himself. In Job, don't turn there because we're just going to do it real quick. I put it on your uh, handout. Job chapter 9, verse 8, is where we find he alone, so he, God, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And the sea, in this case, Hebrew, Yom, which I also meant we mentioned last week, was a, a local god, which is the sea god, the god of chaos that fights the god of order. So we have precedent of God walking on the sea, and then that, of course, is going to pass down to his son. And we didn't have a whole lot of time to go over this, and 
I never want to get too technical on, on words unless they can really help you. But for instance, treads on the waves, which waves is a, that's interpretation. That's, that's the way that the, our Bible writers are saying, what do they mean by this word? Oh, it must mean waves. He treads on the waves of the sea, and it's the sea. And what's interesting about this is that word treads, it's on your handout. Uh, it means it's a, it's a little bit like setting your foot in somebody else's territory and trampling. Now, whose territory is God setting his feet in? Well, it's the territory of chaos. It's the one who wants to disrupt God's order. So God will has, since he has authority for that, God tramples on the, the realm of chaos. That's his job, not ours. And Again, anytime we bump into that chaotic mess, we've got to say, okay, God, this is beyond me. I'm going to rely on you to bring down, to calm this place down because that's what I need. So, uh, interesting word, treads. So, it's not simply just walks, but treads. And then the word for waves, bamot, is where we get this, the word bema, like the bema seat. So, it means high places. Now, this is weird because if he said he treads on the high places of the sea. So what do our, what do the Bible interpreters do? Oh, well, what's a high place of the sea? What are they talking about? Oh, it must be the waves. But then it's got a double meaning because it treads on the high places of Yom, which is also a God. And high places is where people go to worship. So God will tread on the worship sites of the places that make chaos. That's what God does. So it's got a double meaning there, and that's just an interesting uh, phrase here, the way that they use that word bamot. Okay, so now, if this is what God does, then when we see Jesus stroll out on the sea and the waves, what is he doing? Well, he is on top of that realm of chaos, and he has the authority now that's passed down from the Father. And of course, that's what we see going on in the text. And that's really cool when we, when we can make those connections. All right, so that was all last week. And now tonight, what we're going to do essentially is read uh, Matthew. And so what I wanted you to do, go ahead and turn to Matthew 14, or if you want to, turn your handout over, because I also put the whole thing typed it, or yeah, I put the whole thing on your handout with some notes to help us. And we're just going to go verse by verse because, you know, when the Bible writers, they're very specific and they're inspired, right? So these words are important. And when words shift or particular words are used, we need to pay attention to that. I'm reminded of the phrase, I think it was Mark Twain. He said, what, the difference between an author using the right word and the wrong word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. And I thought, well, that's a good way to put it, because authors don't just randomly choose words and then say, oh, well, I got that one wrong, particularly if the author is inspired. So we'll look closely at the way these, some of these words shift. Before I do that, one quick note, just as a reminder. 
to show you how we can connect something like Job to the text that's going to come up in here in Matthew. This is just visualization. I didn't put this on your handout. You guys have, I know the majority of the class knows this, but at least for the video and those who would follow on, when we, we have our Bible, the Old Testament is written originally in Hebrew, some Aramaic Hebrew, mainly. Then you have, of course, the New Testament. That's written in Greek. And so then the question becomes, well, how can we connect a New Testament text that's in Greek back to an Old Testament text? How would we know that those are connected, right? If one's in Hebrew, the other one's in Greek. Well, around the year, and I'm guessing, because this is a complete guess, 250 B.C., 250 years before Jesus was born, in and, in and about, there's actually a process, and there's an evolution to this happening. In Alexandria, Egypt, there were Greek-speaking Jews. They didn't speak Hebrew, so they wanted their Bible, their script, Holy Scriptures, in Greek. There's a whole story. They got a group of people together. They all did the translation, and what they came up with is something called the Septuagint. So we have a document that predates Jesus that's the Greek Old Testament, and our New Testament writers almost entirely rely on that Septuagint. Now, sometimes they're relying on an Aramaic translation, but often what they're doing is they pull a quote from the Old Testament, they go to their Septuagint, or what they would know in Greek, and then that's how it shows up in the New Testament. So, for instance, Walking on the sea in, in Job, it's the same phrase that shows up in Matthew and Mark, and it's those particular Greek words. So you could go back to that Septuagint and say, well, what did Job say here? Are they the same words? And yep, sure enough, they are. And then you'd think, ah, the, the author's probably relying on that Greek translation. So I just wanted to, you to know there does exist, at the time of Jesus, a Greek translation. There's also an Aramaic translation that they would use as well, but for, for today's notes, just know about the Greek. Okay. All right, so let's turn now. Matthew 14, this is 22 to 33. One thing to note, every, the, okay, Matthew, Mark, and John tell the story of walking on water. Luke does not. For whatever reason, Luke decided to leave the story out. It's always told right after the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, Mark actually tells us, when you get to the end of it in Mark, he says, the disciples still didn't understand about the, the feeding of the bread. And you're like, what does the walking on the water have to do with the bread? Well, to Mark, he's connecting the two. So it's always told Jesus feeds 5,000, then walk, the very next thing, walks on water. And they're connected somehow, so we should be trying to connect them in any way we can. Okay, verse 22. So when it says, immediately afterwards, well, immediately after what? Well, immediately after feeding 5,000, he compelled the disciples to get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Now, let me, a, a couple notes just by the way, because everybody has a, usually has a different uh, Bible translation. In this particular case, I'm using the NASB, New American Standard. And I'm doing that because they go to a more literal 
compared to, say, the NIV or the New Living Translation, which is more contemporary. So it has the words I need, where the NIV doesn't. Anyways, um, so we're, we're in the NASB. Immediately afterwards, he compels the disciples to get in the boat, to go to the other side. Now, the other side where? And this is another confusing thing about the story between Matthew, Mark, and John. Which direction is he sending them, and where do they end up the next morning? Because in John, it's Capernaum, but here, it's different. So it's, it gets a little bit confusing about this. If you're trying to map out in detail the way the four Gospels are, it'll drive you nuts sometimes. So anyways, immediately after feeding 5,000, he compels the disciples to get into the boat. That's interesting. He doesn't often send them off on their own, but he does. And then he sends the crowd away. Verse 23, after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Okay. Next verse, 24. But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, I'm going to focus for a second. Uh, we're not going to try to figure out how far away from land because we don't know exactly which direction they're going. But I want you to notice this word battered. So it says the boat was battered by the waves. Now, we know what that means, right? The waves are slamming up against the boat. That's what we kind of think about battered. But what's interesting is that Greek word for battered actually means tormented. And it's even deeper than that. It's, um, so it means tortured. It means tested. So in a strange way, there's a sense of testing that's happening. They just fed 5,000. 5, he sends them out on the sea, and the boat is being tested by the waves. And uh, the root word, the, the root of that Greek word that we translate battered, because how, how do you describe what's happening that the waves are doing, is a word for touchstone, a, a stone that was used to test the authenticity of gold or silver. It's a stone used for testing. So I think in a weird way, the testing matters. They're being tested in some way, shape, or form. They're moving across the sea in a way that's going to test their faith in a, in a sense. And of course, that's, this is going to apply to our lives because how, how often is, do we get our faith tested when we don't know when God's going to show up in the storm? So just an interesting note. Um, and that word battered by the waves, literally tormented by the waves. Okay, verse, uh, let's see. Verse 25, and now here's, this is kind of the main one that we all know. Verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, we'll deal with this one in a minute, fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Very important to note that the NASB, and the reason I chose it, and a lot of other ones as well, but the NASB uses the phrase, the sea, because we say Jesus was walking on water. That's not what the Bible says. It says he was walking on the sea. Well, Scott, technically it's water. Okay, I get it, but you got you to gotta pay attention to, to Matthew, because he's going to switch underlying Greek words when it comes to Peter. 
So in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And that is now bringing in the phrase that comes from uh, Job. And it speaks to that audience to say the sea is that enemy of God that creates chaos. And Jesus is above it. He's walking above it, just like his father in heaven did. And so let me show you just real quick why it's so important to check, particularly in a story like this, to check multiple translations. So for instance, this is from a website, biblehub.com. You can go there and check out multiple interpretations. So at the top, the very top one, the New International Version, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, technically, it is a lake, so it's not wrong, but you're missing the sea, you know, and to the untrained person, they just think, okay, he's walking on water, because that's kind of how we heard it. But now that you guys have been trained in the ancient Near East symbolism and biblical symbolism of sea, now you realize why it's important to say he's walking on the sea, because that brings in all of that imagery. Uh, the next one down, New Living Translation. He's walking on water, and that's kind of the way we think about most people talk about Jesus walking on water. The rest of them, the ESV, the Berean Study Bible, the King James, see, 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 see. So the majority of your Bibles will translate it see, because it's the Greek word for see, and it's the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint for Job, or for the Old Testament Hebrew word yom. So anyways, not to beat this horse, but when you see lake or you see water, then, right, it's just there's a frustration. Yes, they're more contemporary, they're easier to read, but you often give something up. Uh, there's no perfect translation of the Bible. Okay, let's go back to this then. It was the fourth watch of the night, and he came to them walking on the sea. What's up with the fourth watch of the night? Why is, why that? Now. The first thing we have to realize is that in biblical times, the day is divided, obviously day and night like we do. Daytime has 12 hours. So starting at 6 a.m., the first hour is 7. The second hour is 8 a.m. The third hour, 9 a.m. So your Bible says at the third hour, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Then you have the sixth hour is at noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. Your Bible says Jesus was died at the ninth hour. Then you get to the nighttime, which starts at 6 p.m., and you divide it into four watches, four three-hour segments. First watch of the night, 6 to 9. Then, you know, the military guys or the watchmen for the, that are on the city wall switch. They, they rotate their duty. You don't leave the guy out there for too long or else he'll fall asleep. Second watch of the night, midnight to, th uh, sorry, 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch, midnight to 3. Fourth watch of the night, 3 to 6 a.m. Now, if immediately after feeding, feeding 5,000, he sends them out in a boat and start rowing, how long have the disciples been rowing? Well, he has to send them, at least in the daylight because he's dismissing the crowd, it's at least 3 a.m. I mean, this is nine plus hours of rowing. That's a long time. Now, that's, that's if we think about it just in the literal sense. 
But still, that's a long span of time for them to be rowing a boat. But let's go metaphorical. What's the darkest time of night? Yeah, I mean, we have that phrase, it is darkest before the dawn. Some people say 4 a.m. is the hour that's the darkest, right? So what is happening here? When does God show up when you're in the storm? He doesn't show up at the first watch of the night and say, ah, no worries, I'll let you off the hook now. He goes, it's always at the moment that you think it's just about to end. You think all is lost and then God shows up. And so God's timing seems to be the fourth watch of the night. And, and so does that lend to the story? They're in the darkest part of the night. They've been out there all night. You're tired and you're just wondering when this is going to be over. And you don't know when God's going to show up. He shows up at exactly the moment he needs to show up. So the fourth watch of the night, it's late into the night. Okay, now let's go to the next verse. Verse uh, 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, so that's twice that Matthew tells you he's walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Then, immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Right? There's that command from God. When you're in the midst of the chaos, God's going to say, Do not fear. I'm with you. Now, if we read it in, in Mark, it says that Jesus is watching them. So that adds even more to the element of how can we understand this about our own life? In Mark, Jesus sees them straining against the oars. In Matthew, it just it doesn't tell us that. He just walks out in the middle of the night. But this is going to be a huge metaphor for our own lives and how, how the world works in the chaos. Okay, let's go to verse uh, 28, because now Peter's going to respond. And it's an important thing to note. Peter responds to him saying, Lord, if it, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. Change of Greek word. It's the Greek word for water. Does Peter have authority over the sea? No, he does not. And neither do you and I. God has the authority over the sea. God treads upon the sea. So when Peter gets out, now, We'll talk about God's power that sustains him on top of the water. I get it, but it's not the sea. And you have to know, we have to know that Matthew is switching Greek words. He knows the difference between sea and just water. Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. Now he's above the chaos. We get it. That's a great picture. He's standing above the chaos with Jesus. But he doesn't have the full authority that Jesus does over the sea, and it's important to note that. And he came towards Jesus. Because this is really, when we get to this, most of us think about the Jesus part. He's standing on the water. I like to think about the Peter part, because what does that mean for you and I? God doesn't give Peter authority over the sea. He, he gives him the ability, the power to stand above the, the chaos of the water. But it's different. Um. In Genesis 1, God creates the sea monster. Some of your Bibles say big fish or giant whale or something like that. He creates the sea monster, literally, sea monster. 
But when he goes to Adam and Eve and says, here's what you have authority over, the land, the trees, the birds, the animals, and the fish, it changes words. It's fish, not sea monster. God never gave you authority. The two things that he doesn't give Adam and Eve authority over, the chaos and time. And what are we dealing with? When are you going to show up, God? I'm on this lake. I'm rowing. I've been here all night rowing. I'm on the chaos. When are you going to show up? And God doesn't give you authority over time, and he doesn't give you authority over the chaos. He retains that himself. That's good to know. Because when I bump up against that, I need to, that's where I need to know my limitation and say, okay, God, I met my limitation. You take over. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 30. But seeing the wind, and this is the greatest part, because what happens? What's going to sink us when, God is hold, when God's power is holding us above the chaos, right? We're in the metaphor. We're, don't literally go walk out on a lake. It's not going to hold you up. Think chaos in your own lives. He's seeing the wind. He became frightened. The moment you're afraid, that's it, right? You're going to start sinking into the chaos. And he began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Now, we all know this inherently. And it's easy to say, but it's real hard to do when the chaos is rising around you, not to be afraid. But fear is the thing that will, that will um, sink us. Now, I'm just going to do this real quick. And uh, I'm watching the time, and I just want to show you real quick. Because Psalm 69 starts out with David and the, the waters and the depths, right? But look at, there's a little piece in here that fits what Peter, what's going on with Peter. Uh, it's Psalm 69, and it's 13 to 15. I'm just going to read it real quick. But listen to where Peter's at in this. I pray to you, Lord. In the time of your favor and your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Lord, save me, right? Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. There's Peter. He's sinking into the... I love the... There's so many stories in the New Testament. They have an outline in the Psalms. It's, it's pretty amazing. Rescue me from the mire. Don't let me sink. Now watch what, day, what happens here. Deliver, or sorry, there's the phrase I'm looking for, don't let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me. Oh, by the way, those people are just like the deep waters. They're creating the chaos. And then he goes right back to the uh, waters. Don't let the flood waters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over to me. Anyways, just reminds me of Peter. You're sinking, and you cry out for salvation, and God reaches down and grabs your hand. So, also Psalm 69, great psalm for when you're in chaos. Maybe you don't want to read it and remind yourself that you're in chaos, but... Okay, he saw the wind, he's frightened, he cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out with his hand, took hold of him, and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, here's the tough question. Why did you doubt what? He doesn't doubt Jesus. Jesus is still standing on the water. He doesn't doubt the existence of God or that. What does he doubt? And this is a tough one because we tend to want to interpret it. And let me show you one example of a 
very, a poor interpretation, and I'm sorry if you have the New Living Translation, but it's the, it's the example of a poor... It says, Jesus reached out and grabbed him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And they insert the word me. That's not in the text. But we tend to think he's somehow doubting Jesus. No, Jesus is still standing on the water. All the other ones, it's just doubt. Why did you doubt? And then I like this one because I'll show you the definition in a minute. Why did you waver? That's the key right there. What's Peter wavering? We'll get there in a minute. But it's, it's the definition of the word. We think of doubt as maybe does God exist or I doubt Jesus. You know, it, something about it we doubt. But it's, I think here it's more of a, it's a hesitation. It's a wavering. Do I take the next step or not? Is the water going to hold me? Does God power going to keep me above the water? Right? Have you, ever had, have you ever been faced with chaos and you're afraid to take a step forward because you don't know if God's going to meet you in the step? It's, the, it's a wavering. So I put this on your handout. This word that we're looking at, why do you doubt? It actually means double standing. Why do you have a double stance? Going two directions, it says properly, shifting between positions. I'm shifting between, should I get out of this boat or should I stand on the water? Should I get out of the boat or stand on the water? Peter's not committed because he doesn't think the next step is going to hold him above the water. You're choosing a double stance to vacillate, to waver. It's an uncertainty. And I think, I think the key here, when we look at that definition that way, is Peter's not doubting Jesus. He's doubting the next step. And all of us do that. You know, you have to tell someone the truth. And you wonder, what's going to happen if I tell the truth? You know, we have a friend of ours had a work situation had to, where she had to tell the truth. And she thought for sure that she'd get fired. It's a big deal. But God kept, yeah, as she was praying about it, stand in the truth. And she did, and it's really uncomfortable for her. But God met her in the truth and is upholding the truth for her. In fact, uh, people that she worked with started coming out of the woodwork saying, I agree with you. I'm, I'm glad that you told the truth. So, but for her, it was this moment of chaos. What do I do? Do I hesitate? Do I tell the truth? Did I, do I take the step and have, know that God's going to meet me? So anyways, I wanted to show you that. I don't think it's that he's doubting Jesus. I think that it's, He's vacillating on that next step. It's when we have to face the chaos that we doubt whether God has the power to meet us in the chaos. Okay, then it says, verse 32, we'll finish this up. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are truly God's son. And again, that's what we ended with last week. How did they know? How do they know that Jesus is God's son? Well, the it's that whole biblical idea of the uh, authority of the fathers being passed down to the son. He's the one walking on the sea. Peter is standing on the water. Okay, now what does this mean for us? Because I think this is the really important part, and hopefully you're already picking up on, I think, on some of it with Peter. This is where we live, folks. We did this before. It's called the Lake of I Don't Know. We live in, a, we live in the world of chaos. And if you don't believe it, read the newspaper tomorrow, open up your window, look outside. And what don't we know? There's all kinds of things that we don't have control over. 
When's this whole thing going to end with COVID? I don't know. When are things going to move forward with whatever? I don't know. When is someone going to be healed? I don't know. We live on the lake of I don't know because we don't, we don't, God didn't give us that information. So we live and sometimes the chaos rises up and we're just sitting on a boat, right? We're on a boat and we're saying, okay, God, I feel like I've been out here for a long time and I need you to come out and give me some rescuing. And then God's going to say to you, you know what I want you to do? In the midst of this chaos, I need you to step out of the boat. And then your question is, what? <laughs> Wait, what? You want me to do what? Yes, take a step. Step into the chaos. And what so often, the biblical metaphor is that when you step into the chaos, like the parting of the Jordan River when they're coming to the promised land, you take the step, God meets you underneath. But when you're looking at the step, it looks like chaos, right? So. We're on the lake of I don't know. I don't know when all of this stuff, how it's going to end and when it's going to end and the timing of all of it, but I know God's timing is perfect timing. So we wait, we pray constantly, we release the responsibility to God on the things that he controls, and we, we take care of the things that we control. And, and I think Peter shows us that, that if we allow fear to take over in our lives, that will immediately start to descend in the chaos. Now we can cry out to God, but I think that's really a big part of the lesson here is this is where we live. We don't know when God is going to show up. And I think that's part of the fourth hour of the night, fourth watch of the night, excuse me, that he always shows up at the darkest time, it seems, where you think all is lost. And then suddenly it gets calm and you don't know how it happened. So. Anyways, I hope I hope I was able to bring that together because I think that's the important part of when we see Peter walking on the sea, or I'm sorry, walking on the water. Okay, so just as a way of review, there is a cosmic battle happening every day, and we're participating. Do we bring order? Do we part or do we increase the chaos? Right. So we want to be on the side of God and order, but we should recognize that God is the one who is who's ultimately going to be in charge of all of this chaos. Uh, the sea is the enemy of God. That's the representative enemy of God. And God has authority over that sea. He has authority over the chaos. Know where your limitations are and when you have to hand that off to God. One thing, let me back up real quick, sorry. One thing I, we talked about the lake of, I don't know, a couple years ago. One thing I find really important is if you can recognize that you are actually sitting on the lake of I don't know. Sometimes when we feel overwhelmed, we don't feel that we're in a solid position. And what I like about it is I'll, you know, write out a prayer and I'll say, okay, God, I'm on the lake of I don't know. I'll even draw a little picture of a boat and me sitting in the boat. And what it does is it puts me somewhere. Sure, I'm on the lake of I don't know. I don't know the answer, but at least I'm somewhere. And I feel a little bit better about being somewhere than cast about nowhere. So it gives you a solidness of at least I recognize my position and where I'm at. So you might want to think about that if you're ever doing a prayer about the lake of I don't know. Pretty much every day, I think, is you're on, I'm on the lake of I don't know some, in some way, shape, or form. Okay, God has authority over the sea. The authority of the Father is passed down to the Son. Jesus then, therefore, is the Son of God. And then 
what happens with us is we don't get that authority over the chaos, but the power of God can sustain us through the chaos. That's the Peter piece that he's, but he's wavering. He doesn't quite understand that God's power is able to keep him above uh, the chaos. And of course, this is much easier said than done as we're all sitting here calmly in our Zoom uh, boxes. You know, when chaos is rising around you, you don't always feel that way. It's much harder to implement than it is to um, say, but we can get better over time. So, okay. So that's walking on water. Hopefully we hit enough of those points enough to have that come across. What we're going to do next week is we're going to go to this. There's a, there's a piece where Jesus is the woes. Woe to the cities, Bethsaida, Capernaum. We want to look at those woes, what, what Jesus is talking about. So we'll go from walking on water to the woes. So let me go ahead and stop the share.